I've had some conversations with your staff this week about what am I going to preach on. And I think it was Reed who said, uh, so uh, is it one that I've heard before? Which one are you doing? I said, well, Reed, I'm not, I'm not kind of dusting off something from the file. I'm going to preach something for Northside. This is a sermon that I haven't preached before. And this is, this is admittedly a little bit awkward because, you know, most preachers kind of pull something out of their file and they pick up, pick up the thing that they've gotten the most compliments on over the last year and they figure they're going to use that. Now, the problem is if you haven't gotten any compliments you're in big trouble. And so um, what we're going to do here is not, not go with something that has um, been preached to a particular congregation at a particular time for a particular purpose. It's something that I, I feel like <clears throat> I need to share with you guys about what my convictions are and what my priorities are and what, what are the foundational stones for ministry that I would hope to build upon. Now, admittedly, in a 20-minute sermon, it's impossible for me to tell you everything that would be important for you to know about me in order for you to make an informed decision when it comes to voting. So I I will ask for your indulgence, because as I hear, uh, what what I may be about to launch into might be a few minutes longer than what you're used to, but I promise you're still going to get to lunch. We're not talking 1 o'clock here. We're just talking, trying to make sure that everybody knows what's going to happen here. And so... uh, is we're about to engage, like I said last night, in the most massive democratic process for determining God's will, I figured I'd better make sure that you guys know what you're getting. So we're going to do that. And I want to begin by asking you guys the question. I'm really kind of posing the issue this way. I think all of us who have grown up in church understand that theologically speaking, we know that Christ is the head of the church. Jesus is the senior pastor of Northside Baptist Church. Now, it might not show up in your constitution and bylaws. It might not show up on your business card. But as Baptists and as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that Jesus is, um, he's the boss. He's he's in charge. He is the senior pastor of the church. The problem is, it's a lot easier for us to understand Christ as the head of the church in kind of an abstract way. It's a little harder for us to imagine what would it be like if Jesus was your pastor. What would he do? What would he preach on? What would he be committed to? You think Jesus would, the big thing in ministry for Jesus as the senior pastor at Northside Baptist Church would be Sunday school? Would it be vacation Bible school? Wouldn't be the WMU because he's a man. Um, So we, we we can knock a couple of them out there. But what would Jesus be committed to? And the good news is, in God's Word, I think, we, I think we find something out related to that. So I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, and I want to see if this passage, as we walk through it, will give us any indication of the kind of things that Jesus is committed to. Now, <clears throat> a little background. Uh, I'm, I'm not the math teacher, my wife is, but I know that Matthew chapter 15 comes after Matthew chapter 14. So one of the things that's good is if you flip back a chapter, you see something really interesting that kind of sets the stage for what Jesus is about to talk about. If you flip back and you have any headings in your Bible at all, you'll see that the big thing that happened in Matthew chapter 14 is Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Up to this point, Jesus has been a fairly backcountry itinerant minister, roaming around, preaching, healing, working miracles, teaching about the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, fire struck when Jesus fed 5,000 men. Now, it's, it's wrongly named. It's probably closer to 15 
or 20,000 people that he fed. It was only 5,000 men that were counted, plus their families. Well, listen, you want to make a splash? Uh, Jesus just did it. And so Jesus has gone from being uh, a guy roaming around in the countryside to now uh, the New York Times has got an op-ed piece about who this Jesus of Nazareth is. They're interested in who... They may not have been interested before, but all the talk in town is about this man who has fed 5,000 men. So when we get to Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, you can almost hear the, the dramatic, dun, 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 dun. He's coming to get checked out. He's coming to get grilled. And so look with me at verses 1 through 7 of Matthew chapter 15. God's word says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that could help you has been given over to God. And therefore you are not bound to honor your father and mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The thing that we see in this passage that I believe is a a fundamental building block for Jesus is that Jesus is demonstrating that his disciples, us as believers, uh, must be fully committed to the full and final authority of God's word. Look at the question that the Pharisees ask him. Uh, They they kind of set the distinction here. They say, Jesus, why do your disciples break what? Not the word of God, the tradition of the elders. Now, see, that's when you ask Jesus a question, be really careful, because he will ask you a question back, and he does it right here. He almost like, so you're going you're gonna to ask me a question like you've got something to speak. Okay, so maybe my boys over here are breaking the tradition of the elders. But you know what you guys are doing? You're nullifying the Word of God. Jesus puts tradition and Scripture in contrast to each other. And He says when there is a debate between your habits, your traditions, uh, your preferences, and they butt up against the Word of God, That's already got to be a debate that is settled for Bible-believing Christians. There is no debate. God's Word wins every time. Now, the thing that's interesting here, who is it that is sent to Jesus? It is not just Pharisees and scribes. You can find Pharisees and scribes all over Israel. These are Pharisees and scribes from where? From Jerusalem. They're coming from the central office. They're not trusting the local branch to take care of this. This guy is, after all, fed 5,000 men. He's got something working for him that the local guys need to call in the head honcho. So there is at least an an implied greater authority, greater zeal, and maybe even greater threat. They've just bypassed local stuff and gone straight to the head guys and said, y'all need to get down here, we got a problem. And also in in Matthew chapter 14, you'll see one of the things that happened to somebody who... um, kind of crossed powers with, with the, crossed swords with the political powers, John the Baptist was beheaded in Matthew chapter 14. So when these guys show up from Jerusalem, it's serious business. There's a confrontation about to take place, and we've seen it in these first seven verses. They say, Jesus, why don't you do what everybody else does? And he says, well, why do you not care about God's word? 
Now, it's important to note that this is really not about hygiene. Uh, I kind of laughed with Scott. It was a great illustration for the kids. This was not simply about hygiene. It was about ceremony. And there were all kinds of laws about how you were to appropriately and ceremoniously wash your hands according to the tradition of the um, Pharisees. You were supposed to take um, one log, L-O-G, of water, which was basically enough to fill one and a half eggshells. And you were supposed to hold your hands in particular ways and pour it in between your hands to wash and then hold your hands upside down so that the water would drip off your fingers because now the water was contaminated with your own filth. And if it ran down your sleeves, well, then you're back to square one. You've got to wash again. And now you've got to wash your arm, not just your hands. This was not an issue of hygiene. This was not, you don't want to eat the dirt that you were playing in. This is not, you want to, you want to you know, not... It's not hygienic. It's ceremonial. And so Jesus is really warning us about something here that is really important. He's warning us that while traditions can be a great thing, friends, tradition can go contrary to the Word of God. Now listen, that's not just a word to us that are traditionalists. I've seen a few folks here with their um, nice, new, shiny iPhones Trendiness is as much a, much a challenge to faithfulness to God as tradition is. So it doesn't matter whether you're a traditionalist or a, tre- a trendsetter. It doesn't matter whether you're young or whether you're old. Your faithfulness must, above all things, be to the Word of God. That is what Jesus says is a foundation for him. And here's why tradition and trends are both equally dangerous. Neither one of them require your heart to be involved. If you're just simply doing a tradition to do a tradition and going through the motions, you can't externally do whatever you need to do without your heart ever being engaged. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this. How many of you have ever come to church and sang a song without really singing the song? How many of you have come to church and listened to a sermon without really listening to a sermon? Guys, even for us, who love Jesus and want to see his kingdom expanded around the world, there's a, there's a danger for the things that we do to become traditional and our heart's just not engaged anymore. We come and we sit and we soak and we go out and nothing's ever different. And Jesus says the word should be a living and powerful reality in our lives. Not only does it only focus on externals and not deal with our hearts, when we start talking about traditions and trends, you start to get kind of uh, camps or tribes in the church, and everybody becomes very self-centered and very self-interested and very self-righteous that, well, you know, if you don't have an iPhone, you're just behind the times. You know, if you don't wear choir robes, well, you're not faithful to God. Every choir should have choir robes. And what happens is you start to get these groups of people, the traditionalists versus the trend, trendy folks, and you get these two tribes that kind of look down their nose at each other and say, the way we do things is the right way. I don't know about those hoodlums over there. Guys, that just shouldn't happen in the church. It's interesting to look out here and to see um, a pretty interesting diversity of age. <clears throat> we could have a very interesting conversation this morning about worship music. And I'm just going to say, generically, people under 40, people over 40, are going to have some different opinions about worship music. Is that true? That's true. 
why would we ever in the church want to fight about songs that are lifting high the name of God, extolling His praise, and reminding us of the gospel? This song that we just sang about Jesus dying and rising and justifying us and not being held by the grave, I don't care how old you are, that's the gospel. If you don't like that song, it's not an issue of style, it's an issue of singing the gospel and being reminded of it, reminded of it in the words that we sing. And one of the things I think Jesus would say to us when it comes to the Word of God, you don't just need the Word of God to get saved. You need the Word of God to stay saved. We need the gospel every day. The problem is when he calls us to be living sacrifices, that's a really weird thing because when you think of a sacrifice, you think of something that is dead and done. But you're alive. You're a living sacrifice. And that means every morning that you wake up, you're tempted to crawl off the altar. You're tempted to live the way that you want to. And Christians that take the Word of God seriously and allow that to regulate their life, their habits, their passions, are are people who don't crawl off the altar. And so Jesus tells us very specifically that we must be committed, hold fast to the Word of God. In our second point, we see that Jesus makes an amazing clarification in the way that he denounces the scribes and the Pharisees. He's already told them that they don't pay attention to the Word of God. That when, when tradition and the Word of God face each other, tradition wins in the minds of the Pharisees. But look with me at verses 7 through 9. He says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts or the traditions of men. In these verses, Jesus is telling us that our commitment must be to worship that is passionately from the heart. I just use the illustration of singing without singing. That may be a, 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 a weird way to talk about it, but I think we all know what it is. We walk out of a service, and if the price of admission next week was remembering what the sermon was last week, how many of y'all would have got in this morning? And we value the Word of God? If the price of admission was remembering what we sang last week, how many of you would, would, would get your ticket punched this morning? And, we want, and, and we're committed to worshiping God of the universe who made us, who loved us, who redeemed us? Our, our, our worship must be more than about our preferences. It must be from our heart. This is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus calls these religious leaders, head honchos from Jerusalem, hypocrites. Not really the way to win friends and influence people. We have to ask ourselves, weren't the Pharisees and the scribes passionate? Absolutely they were. Deathly so. Weren't they sincere? Absolutely. Weren't their convictions about ceremonial hand-washing convictions that they, they passionately held to? Weren't they heartfelt? Yes. They just had convictions about the wrong things. They completely missed the boat. They were not concerned about God and His law, but about their interpretations and traditions. And so they were so concerned about procedures that their whole relationship with the Lord went by the wayside. Relationship with the Lord, what do you mean? We're supposed to wash our hands and we're supposed to do it this way. No love for God. Just paying attention to the letter of the law and certainly not to the Spirit. And one of the things that we have to weigh in our worship, it's kind of what I call this, this tool dualism. You see, it, you see it in your outline. What do you want in worship? Do you want action, or do you want affection? 
Do you want people to stand up when you tell them to stand up and sit down when they sit down? Or whether they disobeyed and sat down when they're supposed to stand up and got it all mixed up, but their hearts were really in it. They didn't know who was standing up and who was sitting down because they're not focused on anybody else. Even the worship pastor, they're just worshiping God. Would you rather, do you, would you rather have the right action or would you rather have the right heart? What's more important, the right form or having the right faith? If we sing songs that talk about how great God is and these dramatic changes that he's made in our life, but there's not faith in our heart, what does that say about the words that we sing? We're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. So the sad truth is, you become what you worship. And if you worship your traditions and your preferences, then you worship your traditions and your preferences. But if you worship God, you worship God. And that's an awesome thing. A third thing that we notice in this passage is Jesus' desire for his disciples, for his followers' discipleship to be very intentional. Admittedly, all of the disciples were good Jewish boys. <clears throat> so they, they were probably, Bible doesn't say this, so that's why I st- stepped away from the pulpit. Bible doesn't say this. I could just imagine good little Jewish boys when all these scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem come in. Uh, you know, Peter, he was the one that always got in trouble anyways. Maybe asking for an autograph on the side. Can I get it? I mean, these were, these were important guys. These were the dark suits. These were the guys that pulled up in the Mercedes-Benz. The, these were influential fellows. And so they are admittedly a little perturbed at how Jesus handles these dignitaries, this, these people with these nice, it almost looks like an academic graduation. They have robes and they have colors and they have special hats and, and rings. I mean, these guys are fancy. And Jesus is not all that impressed with them. As a matter of fact... He takes it right to them when they ask him a question. And so in verses 10 through 20, we see a dialogue that happens after the confrontation with the religious leaders. It says, after this, in verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him. So evidently, while he is conversing with the Pharisees and scribes, there's a greater crowd of people around him. And Jesus says, all right, all y'all on the the fringes out there, come on in, let's huddle up, we're going to have a conversation. So after this, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said to them, hear and understand It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. What proceeds out of the mouth, this is what defiles man. Then the disciples came and they said to him, Jesus, Son of God, pre-incarnate one that made everything that ever lives, that knows everything that ever was, that has lived throughout all time, do you know (laughs) that what you said offended the Pharisees and the scribes. I'm trying to help Jesus out a little bit. In case you didn't get it, you really ticked these guys off. And so we're coming to you to tell you so that you can consider the fact that you really weren't really kind to these people. So in your future interactions, you might do otherwise than what you have actually done, Jesus. It's kind of why you called us as your disciples to kind of be your advisors, and you blew it. You, you offended people. Look what he says. Uh, So the disciples came in verse 12. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Well, Peter's really stymied. He's going, all right. So not only are these guys not good religious leaders, they're not plants that the Lord has planted. They're not even believers. 
Peter goes, verse 15, please explain the parable to us. Look what Jesus says. He says, are you still lacking an understanding also? There's one sense in which you are, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you don't know what you've taught until you know what your students have learned. Some of you get that later, okay? Uh, A little limerick here on Sunday morning. But you don't know what you've taught, you know what you've lectured on, but you don't know what you've taught until you know what your students have learned. And here in the midst of this confrontation, Jesus goes, all right, disciples don't really have it. So what he's saying here is not browbeating Peter, because now what does Jesus do? He launches into another explanation about exactly what's going on. What is he doing? He's trying to say, Peter, Peter, don't just follow me because I'm your leader. Follow me because you know why I'm your leader. Don't follow me because I'm in this conflict and I'm winning with the religious opponents, because that's not always going to be the case, at least from a human standpoint. He's saying, you have got to know why you're following me. And so Jesus, very patiently, as a teacher, then launches into this discussion to help their discipleship to be more pure. Verse 17, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Part of the reason Jesus wasn't all that perturbed when the Pharisees came to see him is Jesus knew something that the Pharisees didn't. Hand pollution, not nearly as significant as heart pollution. You've got a chance to focus on hand pollution. Man, that's really easy to see. We could put a bucket up here. We could make sure everybody's hands are washed. You know what? It's really hard to see people's hearts. It's really tough to know why people come to church. And Jesus is saying it's the heart that is most important. Now, most everybody in here over a certain age is a parent. Do you want your kids to obey you or do you want to have their hearts? Do you want them to do what you want them to do or do you want them to obey you from the heart? Listen, you don't have to be a parent very long to know there's a big difference between outward obedience and heart obedience. And Jesus is asking for the same thing here. He's moving things from the external to the internal. And he's saying very plainly, that when it comes to discipleship, it doesn't matter how many Bible classes you take. It doesn't matter how frequently you attend church. It doesn't matter how many perfect attendance pins you've got. It doesn't matter how many evangelism classes you've been through. It doesn't even matter how much scripture you have memorized. If your discipleship is all about information and not about transformation, it's not worth anything. Jesus is not in the business of making people better Bible trivia pursuit players. He is in the business of transforming people's lives. And so when he talks about discipleship, he's not talking about a program. He's talking about people who from their heart want Jesus to be Lord of everything, even when they don't fully understand. And so Jesus is raising the bar here. It's not about completing a class on Sunday night or Wednesday night. It's not about getting a certificate saying that you've done it. He's saying, guys, you never graduate from this discipleship program. You are always finding new ways to discipline your heart. And so in all of these things, when we talk about word, when we talk about worship, when we talk about discipleship, all of these things lead to a culminating fourth point that we see in this passage. And it's that the 
Our, our time in the Word should lead us to God. Our worship should be about God. And our discipleship should be God living His life through us. When that happens, there's just something dramatic that happens. And this leads us to the conclusion that true disciples, true disciples, always allow a love for the nations to grow in their heart that continually grows. It grows. Look with me at verses 21 through 28. Immediately after this, Jesus went away from there. And he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away. She's shouting at us. She's bothering us. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And Jesus answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Oh, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Jesus had, in his confrontation with the religious leaders, proven that he had withdrawn ideologically from the Pharisees and the scribes. But now in this passage, he withdraws geographically. He leaves the borders of the nations of Israel, and he goes to Gentile territory. And he runs into this woman. And here is this woman who is called a Canaanite woman. And if you know anything about that, this is a woman that is a descendant of the ancient enemies of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is interacting with her. And we know that God says at the end of Matthew that his plan is for his gospel to go all the way around the world. So why in the world when this woman comes to him, calling him Lord, son of David, help me, why in the world does Jesus take his time? Isn't that an interesting question? Jesus is committed to his gospel around the world. What is going on? And what, what are the disciples thinking? Jesus interacting with one of our ancient enemies. He ignores her at first. He highlights the fact that she's not Jewish. And then he calls her a dog. Uh, not, not really, again, stuff that you want to follow in your conversations today around the lunch table. Uh, <clears throat> but through it all, Jesus never does anything unloving. He doesn't call her a dog in the sense of a, a mongrel. There's two words in the Greek language for this. One is scavenger dogs that eat from, eat from um, garbage piles. That's not the term that Jesus uses. Jesus uses the term for a household pet. You don't feed a mongrel dog. You feed a pet. And the lady picks up on that and she says, Listen, you might not give me the kids' food, but I'll take the kids' scraps. She responds to what Jesus has to say here. And Jesus had been so overdone with the shallowness and superficiality of his own people that he wasn't just going to do something for this lady at first blush. He was going to test her faith and he was going to make her wait. And it's interesting, when Jesus fed the 5,000, you remember what he did? It says that he knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to feed the 5,000. Do you remember what he did? Philip, how are we going to feed these people? Why would he do that if he knew what he was going to do? He's testing his disciples' faith. Remember the story of Lazarus? What was the matter with Lazarus? He was sick. And he was sick and to the point of death. 
And when Jesus heard that message, what did he do? He waited. Lazarus' own sister said, if you had been here, this would not have happened. They knew what was obvious. But evidently, for Jesus' purposes, a dead Lazarus was better than a sick Lazarus. And there was a way by waiting, he could show the power of God in a way that he wouldn't have been able to. And in this sense, he needed to, to put this woman off ever so gently and ever so temporarily to bring her faith to full flower. And what does Jesus do? He says, he commends her for her faith. This is only, and this is where the point comes home, this is only the second time in all of Matthew's gospel that anyone is commended for their faith. And it's not the disciples, ever. (laughs) The disciples never get it. In Matthew chapter 10, there is a centurion who comes to Jesus, and Jesus commends him for his faith. So in the book of Matthew, the the, the gospel that was written for the Jewish people The only two people commended for their faith in Christ are two Gentiles. Jesus himself is showing us that he is committed, even in his earthly ministry, to seeing people from the nations come to him. And for the life of me, I cannot understand how churches who have the resources in our country like they do are not more committed to taking the gospel around the world than they are. There is not a single person, with the exception of maybe some health concerns, who does not have the opportunity to go on an international mission trip. And I will tell you this very plainly. There is something in your personal discipleship, in your, in, in your maturity, that will always be lacking until you are willing to sacrifice and go overseas and serve. You don't need to go for a long time. But you need to go, and you need to be able to understand what Jesus said when he says, For God so loved the world, not just Rock Hill. So we see four things that Jesus is committed to, that, if I, that I believe if Jesus was your pastor, he would be committed to. Committed to the word, committed to worship, committed to your walk, your discipleship, how you walk through the world, and committed to witness, committed to missions. And that's the kind of church I would love to be a part of. Church committed to the word, a church where God's presence is felt in worship, a church where discipleship is really taken seriously. I never hear anyone in any church ever talk about holiness. I hear my grandparents talk about it. I don't hear anybody talk about holiness. I don't hear anybody take it seriously. But if Jesus is the Lord of all, it must show up in how we live our daily lives. And a church that a church where missions is a passion. And so the question is, how do we get there? And I close with a little bit of a word picture that I think will help you to understand a little bit about who I am. In, in, in church, in, in church life, there are precious few things that should be written in stone. Okay, I don't know if we have any stonemasons here. It's not a terribly easy process to write something in stone. It takes someone who's an expert, and once you do it, it's kind of like getting a tattoo. You know, I love my first girlfriend. <laughs> what happens six months later? You know, um, you, you, don't, you want t- a temporary tattoo for that one. Um, there are precious few things in ministry that should be written in stone. Most of the things that happen in church should be written in sand. And what I'm saying to you is these four things, com- commitment to the full and final authority of the word, commitment to passionate worship, commitment to intentional discipleship, a a commitment to um, 
International missions. These are things that are the things that are written in stone for me. Now, if I needed to, I probably could add a couple more things to the list. I didn't, I didn't feel like those were the most defining characteristics for me. But those are the things that are non-negotiables for me. And when we talk about things being written in sand, there are three things that I think we all realize. We don't like this because sometimes we want to take things that are written in sand and what do we want to do? We want to write them in stone. You guys, listen, change is a part of life, isn't it? Uh, I heard uh, Larry say, didn't want to be the, the only guy here building church, you know, and then graciously calling out someone's 80th birthday this morning. Um, <laughs> listen, change happens. Um, I've been, been complimented on my physical fitness uh, compared to some of the photos that you guys have seen. I won't say who's, uh, who said that, but evidently I'm a lot skinnier in person than I am in a photo. Um, sometimes things change for the better, evidently. <clears throat> the point is th- things change. And three, three things that I think need to be written in stone. Persons, places, and programs. So I've kind of gotten to know your church Rita, is, has it been your one-year anniversary yet? Almost. Will, has it been your one-year anniversary? Almost. Okay. Larry, seven years, six years? There are some persons that have changed quite a bit here. I'm here because persons have changed in your church. One of the things that's natural for a church when they're in transition is there are some people for whom the person is written in stone. And when that person leaves... Guess what happens? They go with them. That's not a bad thing. That's personal loyalty. But if you have not written persons in sand, you're really going to have a hard time with transitions, aren't you? Even in your own congregation, you've seen a fairly significant transition in persons. And there might even be someone that used to sit on the same pew as you did a year ago who's not here anymore. Why is that? It's a simple fact that persons need to be written in sand. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not important. That's not it at all. It just means that things change. Places change. If I've got my facts straight, 10 years ago, you guys bought a, a pretty expensive piece of property. You're planning on your place changing. Now, this, this place <clears throat> is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. I've met a lot of people that have been here uh, <clears throat> a very long time. I can only imagine the... the the issues in your own heart, uh, looking forward to a new day for the church, kind of remembering and reminiscing your sweet fellowship here. The truth of the matter is most churches, groups of Bible-believing Christians gathering together for worship, most Christians around the world do not have a building. Their place changes every week. As a matter of fact, the two fastest-growing churches in Rock Hill have no place. They meet at a public school on Sunday. Places change, don't they? You move. You've been in one house, you go to another house. Your place has got to be written in sand. And, <clears throat> and I may go to meddling here just a little bit, but I'll indulge it because this may be the one and only sermon I get to preach here. <clears throat> <clears throat> I, I resonate with your convictions to build debt-free. Those are convictions my wife and I share in our own family. But if you guys bought a piece of property 10 years ago, 
and you're looking at another 10 years, perhaps, before you can get in there. I'll just be honest, and this is, this is Jesus unkind, not, like, not meanly unkind. This is just being direct. There's a lot of people in here who might not see that new building built. There's a lot of kids here who are going to go off to college never seeing that building built. Is it a priority for this church to get that place built? What sacrifices would you be willing to make to get there quickly? I'm moving here with four kids. I don't want them to move here for a dream that they never see. I don't want my 10-year-old to be a sophomore in college and go, oh, that's why we moved to Rock Hill. Now I get it. Speaking selfishly, I'd love for that parking lot to be where she learns how to get her learner's permit. What would we have to do to get there? Because it's really clear from the way life works. Places change. They're written in sand. So I ask that to you rhetorically. That's a hard question, isn't it? The last thing, not only do do persons change and places change, but programs change. You'll notice that when I talk about the four things that Jesus is committed to in Matthew 15 and that I'm committed to, none of them are programs. I love programs. Programs are great. I think I was a sunbeam. I was a kicking RA. I had every badge and pin you can imagine. Um, I loved it. I'm not committed to programs. I'm committed to the Bible. I'm committed to discipleship. And one of the things that is painfully obvious in our Southern Baptist churches is with 87% of our churches plateaued or declining, we cannot continue to do business the way that we've always done business. That's a great way to go bankrupt. And so listen, this is not an axe to grind against any particular program. The question is, are the programs we're doing producing disciples? Are our kids growing up and understanding what the Christian faith is about? Are they going the distance? Because a Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Are our senior adult ministries helping people to understand in their particular phase of life what it means to be faithful to Jesus until the end? And if all we're doing is keeping ourselves fat and happy, that's not discipleship. That's, that's bankrupting the church ideologically, morally, and destroying its future. And so as we think through these things, I am more aware today than perhaps I have ever been that church life is serious business. I I don't want to give my life to playing church. I want to be effective. And I want to build a church. Dave, as you talked about building a legacy, that is something that we can look back and work our tails off But at the end of it, realize that it was absolutely nothing that we did. Something that God did. And that's the kind of church that I want want to be a part of. And that's the kind of leader that I want to be. And I hope that if you're here and you're visiting, you're here with a, a, a friend who said, you need to come in town, we've got a prospective preacher in town. If you're not committed to a church, brother, sister, commitment to the local church is a New Testament command. You cannot be loosely affiliated with your family. You know who's in your family. You sit around the dinner table. You can't be loosely committed to the church of God, too, because this is a spiritual family. And so if we talk about these four things, your commitment to the word, your commitment to discipleship, your commitment to worship, your commitment to missions, if those are things that you struggle with, today is the day if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and you go, man, as a church, we have to be more committed to the word than I am. That's not good. 
But this is a good place to get that fixed. If you go, isn't it enough for me to just put a check in the plate and we'll allow that to get overseas? Uh, Listen, if what you put in the plate is a measure of your heart, then yes, that's good. But if you're doing that to keep God off, to keep you from going, you need to go. There are wonderful opportunities to serve our Southern Baptist missionaries all around the world. They need the help. There is no way the International Mission Board can afford to do everything that they want to do. They just don't have the the manpower. And they're praying for God to raise up Southern Baptist churches that will send short-term teams to help them push away the darkness. If you're not committed to missions, this is a great morning for you to have that conversation with one of the pastors here at the church. And so I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to pray. And if you have business that you need to do with God, I know that... uh, Brother Larry will be here to receive you. And so would you join me in a spirit of prayer as we enter into this time of invitation. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We pray that as we've had the opportunity to look at this, look at this word, that you have been lifted high, that we have um, evaluated our own lives and our commitment to these four essential things, that you help us to understand the dynamics of way, the way life works, that there are few things that are written in stone and many, many things that change. Lord, help us diligently to be your people, to seek your your face faithfully. And Lord, help us in this moment to uh, do our business with you. Help us to leave here knowing that we are walking out of here more obedient than we walked in here. And we pray these things in Jesus' strong, powerful, and unique name. Amen.